This video is part of an audiobook series featuring Designing Reality, How to Survive and Thrive in the Third Digital Revolution by the Gershenfeld Brothers in 2017. For more audiobooks, please visit my YouTube channel, find me on Spotify, or visit my website for downloads. Chapter 4, The Social Science when the distinction between animate and automata becomes blurred, the social sciences must become more focused. With digital technologies, one revolution has built on another. The past is a clear prologue to the future. With the social sciences, things are a bit messier. Much can be learned from the past, but the past is by no means a clear prologue for understanding and shaping the future. Science drove advances in digital communication and computation, just as it is now driving advances in digital fabrication. The social sciences should be equal drivers when it comes to the human impacts of these transformational technologies. Currently, that is not the case. In fact, it will take a culture change in the social sciences if they are to play this much-needed role. The core challenge with the third digital revolution, like the first two digital revolutions, is that technology is advancing at exponential rates while people tend to change at a linear rate. Historically, the ability of individuals and organizations to adapt to accelerating technological change has varied, with the slowest rate of change limiting the full potential of technology. At times, the technology itself is limiting, but invariably, as technology progresses, social systems become the limiting factors. In this chapter on social science, following a, following a chapter on physical science, we show how social systems have struggled historically to keep pace with accelerating technology, and we highlight the importance of different rates of change for individuals, organizations, and institutions. Finally, we look at some of the bright spots where methods and mindsets have emerged and can be leveraged to help shape the third digital revolution. In the last chapter, Neil described how the battle between analog and digital camps at Bell Labs was resolved not by persuasion but by attrition. The managers who operated and were analog, ad analog advocates died out, and a new generation of digital managers took over. Or, as the physicist Max Planck observed, a new idea only sees the light of day because its opponents eventually die. In a world of accelerating change, however, this strategy will not work. We cannot wait a generation for the social systems to co-evolve with the technology. Moore's Law versus Lass's Law to illustrate the importance of ensuring that the social sciences proactively co-evolve with technology, we begin as Neil did in Chapter 3 with Moore's Law. Moore's Law is popularly understood as the driving force behind digital technologies becoming better, faster, and cheaper. Over the past half-century, periodic reports of the end of Moore's Law have consistently been proven wrong, giving it an air of inevitability. And yet, Moore's Law is as much the product of social forces— it begins, of course, with Gordon Moore's observations. Before it had a name, it was just a published article outlining observations on rates of change and the implications. The article motivated research by the scientists at Fairchild Semiconductors and other pioneering companies. It spurred Moore and Robert Noyce in 1968 when they launched NM Electronics, the predecessor of the Intel Corporation. At Intel, the successive doubling in performance became the core benchmark for the corporation, and over time, for its partners, customers, and competitors. 
As these doubling capabilities improved the performance of countless goods and services, Moore's law became integrated into social expectations. Maintaining the law became a must-have not only for Intel, but ultimately for society, which enthusiastically embraced ever better, ever faster, and ever cheaper digital devices and applications. In the social sciences, Moore's law is what is called a socially constructed phenomenon. It is not a natural law, but rather the product of repeated human behaviors. In this case, the competitive environment is socially constructed. In management science, this kind of socially constructed environment is what is termed an enacted environment. That is, Moore's law is a case of business creating or enacting the very environment in which it competes. The continued acceleration of information technology performance happened because people made it a must-have, first in industry and then in society. What would it take for that to happen with digital fabrication performance? To answer this question, we need to understand some key social differences between Moore's law and Lass's law, starting with the role of Intel. The Intel Corporation has been ground zero for sustaining Moore's law for half a century. Quote from Peter Levin, a social scientist supporting strategic planning in Intel's data center group, quote, Moore's law is our business strategy. Maintaining Moore's law has defined business success for Intel. It has offered a set of criteria enabling partners and customers to evaluate the company's engineering and manufacturing prowess over a long period of time. He adds, it has not been easy. The cost and complexity of maintaining this competitive advantage is incredibly hard. It takes a sustained financial, research, and development commitment on a vast scale. But it is one thing that Intel does better than anyone. He concludes with an evocative metaphor, continuing, Ensuring the continuation of Moore's Law is a bit like Indiana Jones staying ahead of the boulder as it careens down upon him in the movie. End quote. For Intel, the challenge of maintaining Moore's Law is an ever-present existential threat. Addressing this threat has required sustained urgency, focus, and strong execution. A key question, then, is for whom is Lass's Law, maintaining the accelerating pace of digital fabrication performance, an existential driver? Although a single driven company could emerge, we believe it is most likely to be an ecosystem of interdependent but independent stakeholders who will be driving the accelerating gains in digital fabrication performance. In that case, it is an open question whether an ecosystem of organizations, public, private, and nonprofit, can have the same existential drive as a single multinational corporation with executives, employees, and shareholders driving continuously improving financial results. Moreover, such a distributed ecosystem might or might not emerge with the financial and human resources to maintain the basic needed research and development. Shaping social systems to align around Lass's law will be one of the defining challenges for society, and hence, the social sciences in the third digital revolution. Doing so in a way that attends to the threshold challenges of fab access, fab literacy, enabling ecosystems, and risk mitigation will be the measure of success. Unfortunately, the track record for the social sciences taking such a proactive role is not too great. For many years after the identification of Moore's Law, nearly all the social science disciplines failed to recognize that the world was on the cusp of massive transformations driven by digital technologies. 
Because they did not engage deeply with the emerging digital technologies, they did not understand the exponential potential and were constantly limited in their ability to shape the social systems to co-evolve. As a result, we are still playing catch-up. Reactive critical analysis of technology, that is, observation, is the norm in the social sciences. This approach is necessary, but not sufficient in a world of exponentially accelerating technologies. In the social sciences, there is a need for a mix of path observers and path creators when it comes to people and technology. To understand how this might be achieved, we go back to the Industrial Revolution and the origins of the modern social sciences. Reactive versus Proactive Social Science The social sciences, the study of human societies and relationships, have largely been on a reactive path with respect to technology since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. This reactive mindset has so permeated the social sciences, which are sociology, economics, political science, management science, industrial relations, social work, and other related fields, that it will be difficult for social scientists to anticipate and help create the path for accelerating technological change. The Industrial Revolution was marked by a massive qualitative shift from the preceding craft area, a shift as consequential as the shifts associated with the more recent two digital revolutions. The Industrial Revolution was powered by a variety of interrelated techno technological developments across engineering, chemistry, metallurgy, and crucially, steam power. Steam power, which commercially emerged in the late 1700s, enabled a thousandfold increase in human power, driving widespread transformations throughout society. The changes included the transition from handcrafted production to industrial mass production, and the shift from agrarian and cottage-based economies to factory-driven mass markets. Also relevant was the introduction of new chemical, iron, and textile manufacturing processes accelerating industrial output, further enabled by the development of canals and thus large-scale transportation of goods. With the new technologies came something new, class mobility. Entrepreneurial individuals rose to become owners of the new enterprises, giving rise to what would come to be called the American dream, or that hard work and education meant that your birth was not your destiny. At the same time, for the vast majority of the workforce, the Industrial Revolution brought a Faustian bargain in which steady wages came at the expense of deplorable and unsafe working conditions, oppressive supervision, and environmental degradation. The most modern social, most modern social sciences emerged or accelerated in response to the first Industrial Revolution, many decades after the development of the enabling technologies. Modern sociology began, in large part, in the late 1800s with the connection to Max Weber between religious and cultural principles and the logic of capitalism and with Emile Durkheim's documentation of the emerging division of labor. Social work emerged as a field as both Octavia Hill in England in the late 1800s and Jane Addams in the United States in the early 1900s as they responded to the people particularly women and children who were being injured and displaced by the Industrial Revolution. Psychology predated the Industrial Revolution, but took on its modern form with the formation of a professional society in France in 1885 and in the United States in 1892. Industrial relations emerged as a field in England in the late 1800s with Sidney and Beatrice Webb's documentation 
of oppressive working conditions and the need for new forms of industrial democracy. In the U.S., the origins of the field in the early 1900s centered on John R. Common's findings that institutional arrangements, such as the shift from craft unions to industrial unions, followed changes in markets and technology. In these and other cases, because the founding scholars for the social sciences were reacting well after the impacts of the Industrial Revolution had become deeply entrenched in society, the social sciences were constrained in their capacity to improve lives, mitigate harm, and deal with the entrenched interests that were opposed to social change. The Industrial Revolution also inspired new themes in fiction, reflecting the impacts of technology on society. Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, released in 1817, was an exploration of the good and evil faces of technology. This is evident in this passage from the point of view of the monster, where fire can be understood as a metaphor for technology. Quote, One day, when I was oppressed by cold, I found a fire which had been left by some wandering beggars and was overcome with delight at the warmth I received and experienced from it. In my joy, I thrust my hand into the live embers, but quickly withdrew it in a cry of pain. How strange I thought that the same cause could produce such opposite effects. End quote. As the full impact of the Industrial Revolution became evident, the observations by the storytellers more often focused in on the harm associated with the technology. Charles Dickens's 1854 novel, Hard Times, took aim at policies that reinforced the oppressive conditions in factories. Similarly, Upton Sinclair's The Jungle in 1906 horrified the public with its images of unsafe working conditions, child labor, and sexual harassment in the meatpacking industry. These and other works of fiction reinforced the efforts of social scientists on public policy, even if the system was already deeply entrenched. Today, the founding scholars and socially aware writers who documented the impacts of technology on society are correctly honored as pioneers defining new fields of study and bodies of literature. Yet their approach to the technology of the Industrial Revolution was centered on observing and addressing its impacts after the fact. Child labor laws and early experiments with labor management cooperation that emerged could have been far more effective and could have alleviated much more suffering if they had been given full consideration 50 or 100 years earlier as the technologies were emerging. Addressing technology after it is well-established limits what is possible moving forward. As organizations are established, a phenomenon known as path dependency is set in motion in which past decisions under a given set of circumstances constrain future decisions, even if circumstances are different. As a result, once on a given path, organizations have a strong tendency to stay on that path. The concept of path dependency comes from the social sciences, and, ironically, the social sciences themselves have been largely captive to a path with respect to technology. On this path, social sciences are reactive rather than proactive. To a great extent, the social sciences are still constrained to this path. Reinforcing path dependency is another dynamic, which is what Robert Michaels in 1911 labeled the Iron Law of Oligarchy. He observed that new institutional arrangements, he focused on political parties and trade unions, come into existence because of a given mission, but then give priority to their continued existence rather than whatever the initial mission was. 
These same dynamics were documented with respect to scholarly fields and disciplines in 1962 by Thomas Kuhn, who wrote The Structure of Scientific Revolutions. Kuhn observed that it took revolutionary change to overturn established institutional orders in science. We call the reactive approach to the study of new technology path observation. With this term, we have two meanings of observation in mind. The reactive approach is more one of observation rather than shaping the technology, and it involves observing or complying with the established rules and norms. Reinforcing the path observation approach. This approach is strongly enforced in the social sciences through peer review and other mechanisms. Path observation, of course, is necessary, but not sufficient if the social sciences are to take a leadership role in helping to shape a world of accelerating technologies. Proactively helping to shape the third digital revolution will require nothing less than a culture change in the social sciences. The dominant positive social science approach, which is one of path observation, will need to expand to include a much more extensive application of the normative approach. Positive social science focuses on explaining what has happened. A normative approach includes views on what should happen. It still must be grounded in evidence, including a clear understanding of the underlying science and the technology itself. By itself, normative work is often disparaged as not being science, though there are dedicated subcultures committed to what is variously termed action research, participant observation, in similar approaches. It is possible, indeed essential, to combine the positive and normative approaches by embracing and advancing bold, evidence-based analysis of accelerating technological developments and desired transformations. The third digital revolution provides social science with a rare opportunity to engage with emerging new technologies while they are still in formation. It is a chance to look around the corner into the future implications across the many fields and disciplines economics, sociology, political science, management science, industrial relations, and others. This will require the social sciences to shift into a more proactive stance to become creators, not just path observers. Path Creators Among social scientists, Adam Smith developed early principles of economics in the middle 1700s, very close to the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. In this case, his concept of the invisible hand, i.e. self-interest, the division of labor in free markets, became interwoven with the technologies of the Industrial Revolution. His impact illustrates the power of being proactive early in the development of new technology. Crucially, he came to these insights through a careful examination of the technology itself, as evidenced by his detailed description of the division of labor and use of technology in a pin factory. He was a path creator, or, more accurately, a path co-creator with the entrepreneurs and emerging industrialists of the time. By the time Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels came along in the middle 1800s, the technology of the Industrial Revolution was already well advanced. They focused on the control of the means of production. The ownership class was identified as the root cause of the problems in society, since, as Marx analyzed, they were just extracting value from the work of others and keeping it for themselves in the form of profits. Since the concept of ownership of capital was, by that time, deeply embedded in society, the only path that Marx and Engels could envision was that of a revolutionary overthrow of the ownership class and replacing it with a form of social ownership. In this sense, they were path creators, 
inspiring revolutions worldwide centered on a set of operating assumptions contrary to those driving the Industrial Revolution. With Marx and Engels, we see that the work of path creation was progressively more difficult the longer it happened, after the technology emerged, and as technological assumptions became embedded in social systems. The third digital revolution provides a new opportunity to reshape the system. Digital fabrication, with its distributed control over the means of production, can fundamentally change the nature of work, reducing the extractive properties of the system born during the Industrial Revolution without requiring a revolutionary overthrow of that system. There have been many notable path observers since Marx and Engels, yet very few have aspired to be path creators with respect to technology. Frederick Taylor stands out as a path creator, but his innovations actually had the effect of making people subservient to the technology. Beginning in 1911 with the publication of The Principles of Scientific Management, Taylor pointed to, quote, the great loss which the whole country is suffering through inefficiency in almost all of our daily acts. He continues, arguing, the remedy for this inefficiency lies in systematic management rather than in searching for some unusual or extraordinary man. End quote. The ideas took hold. Taylor Society chapters sprung up around the nation. Through the time and motion study of work and other means, Taylor did show how to increase in efficiency by, in effect, treating people as additional cogs in the machine. The resulting field of industrial engineering emerged from this work, combining the social and the technical, but too often with the social as handmaiden to the technical. After World War II, some social scientists tried to promote an alternative path with respect to people in technology. Under the broad umbrella of what came to be known as the post-industrial movement, they took on what we are calling path creation in their efforts to move beyond Taylor's mechanistic logic and reshape technology toward a more humanizing path. Daniel Bell, a leader in the movement, wrote in 1973 that technology, quote, is a form of art that bridges culture and social structure and, in the process, reshapes both. He continued, warning that technology is always disruptive of traditional social forms and creates a crisis for culture, end quote. And that holds equally true today as we consider the Third Industrial Revolution. However, he and others in the post-industrial movement missed what is arguably the most important part of the post-industrial developments, the exponential rate of change in digital technologies. A key part of the post-industrial movement focused on the integration of the social and the technical in factories and other organizations, advancing our understanding of socio-technical systems. By going out in organizations and partnering with workers and managers, researchers conducting pilot experiments successfully identified ways to humanize work in diverse technological settings, including British, British coal mines, Swedish auto factories, American pet food factories, Danish shipping companies, and Canadian oil refineries. Yet, the technology was largely seen as changing incrementally. Even though the socio-technical systems folks were path creators, not just path observers, they did not create paths with the pioneers of digital technologies. As a result, they were unaware that technologies were on the cusp of exponential change. By failing to position the integration of the social and the technical against the backdrop of what would become transformational technological change, the pilot experiments missed out on a key source of leverage. 
Fred and Marilyn Emery, both part of the socio-technical systems movement, did address some aspects of the digital technologies as early as 1976, predicting that, quote, the growing alliance between telecommunications and computers would increasingly form networks in which the collective information and processing capabilities will be available to all users, end quote. Anticipating Neal's claim that the future is present now, they said, quote, We took the view that we were probably already into our future, but in such a small way that it was not easily recognized. They argued that the new technology would allow for the spontaneous generation of content itself, which would make providers and users one and the same, end quote. This aspect of digital communications and computation is exactly what we now see characterizing digital fabrication. In 1981, Eric Trist, another early socio-technical systems leader, built on this analysis, quote, The oncoming information technologies, especially those concerned with the microprocessor and telecommunication, give immense scope for solving many current problems, if the right value choices can be made, end quote. Again, this remark is directly aligned with the aim of this book. Although these and other critical observations about technology were intended to encourage the co-creation of alternative futures, they missed the exponential capabilities of digital technologies. In their 1977 book, A Choice of Futures, Emery and Emery were even critical of Shannon's so-called theory of information. Certainly, the core concepts of error correction without degradation in quality were hard to accept. Yet, without an understanding of these essential properties of the technology, path creation was constrained. Imagine what the impact of the socio-technical systems approach would have been if Emery and Emery had been able to anticipate and ride the wave of exponential growth that was just beginning at the time. The exponential power of the technology did not go unnoticed by everyone outside the insular world of technology development, but it was mostly appreciated by people out of the mainstream of the social sciences. Stuart Brandt, founder of the Whole Earth Catalog and Coevolution Quarterly, advocated a decentralized personal view of technological development, a view that was intended to be liberating and ecologically responsible. Issues of Coevolution Quarterly were devoted to imagining everyday life in space colonies, solar water heaters in Los Angeles, the threats of genetic toxicity, and other topics covering whole systems, shelter and land use, industry and craft, communications, and community. Although Brand was not a social scientist, his full and early engagement with the technology illustrates what path creation can look like. In fact, he went beyond path creation to a form of co-creation with some of the leading technology pioneers. It led him to the conclusion that co-evolution was not only possible, but also necessary. John Markoff, who wrote What the Dormouse Said, How the 60s Counterculture Shaped the Personal Computer Industry, says, quote, Stuart was the first one to get it. He was the first person to understand cyberspace. He was the one who coined the term personal computer. And he influenced an entire generation, including an entire generation of technologists, end quote. In Steve Jobs' now famous 2005 commencement address at Stanford, he concluded with an extended tribute to Brand and the deeply human values Brand brought to the technology enterprise. Interestingly, Joel, Neil, and Alan all subscribed to and avidly read Coevolution Quarterly, illustrating its appeal across science, social science, and the humanities. In Soft Tech, 
a co-evolution book, which was edited by Brand and inventor Jay Baldwin, the lead chapter, One Highly Evolved Toolbox by Baldwin, describes his portable shop that had been evolving for 15 years. He concludes that the ultimate is to make your own tools. Brand was a co-creator with a wide range of technology pioneers. His access was both formal and informal. It was a legendary party scene, and this was not incidental to the co-creation. High-trust social relationships enabled Brand to bridge the social and the technical in ways that would not be possible through an arm's-length observation. Along with inventor Douglas Engelbart, Brand co-delivered the mother of all demos at the 1968 annual joint meeting of the Association for Computing Machinery and the Institute of Electrical and Electronics Engineers. The demo featured new technologies such as email, hypertext, the mouse, and others. Another person who was outside the social science mainstream but who also tuned into the accelerating pace of change with the technology was author and futurist Alvin Toffler. In his 1970 book, Future Shock, he captured the challenge of keeping pace with accelerating technologies and the importance of proactively shaping them. Quote, Throughout the past, as successive stages of social evolution unfolded, man's awareness followed rather than preceded the event. Because change was slow, he could adapt subconsciously, organically. Today, unconscious adaptation is no longer adequate. Faced with the power to alter the gene, to create new species, to populate the planets or depopulate the earth, man must now assume conscious control of evolution itself. Avoiding future shock as he rides the waves of change, he must master evolution, shaping tomorrow to human need. Instead of rising in re revolt against it, he must, from this historic moment on, anticipate and design the future. End quote. Toffler was prescient about the deep psychological impact of too much technological change in too short of a time. He argued that we must unleash the forces of conscious evolution to shape the impact of the technology, appreciating the need for co-evolution and designing the future. Brand and Toffler are to be credited for seeing the importance of path creation in a world where technology is changing at an accelerating rate. Arguably, the limitations of the first and second digital revolutions would have been even worse were it not for the injection these human, uh, from these humanistic path creators, but counterfactuals are always hard to confirm. As a result, we see their contributions as exemplary, but like the handful of path creators before them, they were outliers when it came to prioritizing co-evolution of social and technical systems. The challenge of co-evolving social and technical systems was crystallized in 1984 by Michael Pior, a social economist, and Chuck Sable, an economic sociologist. Pior and Sable identified the transformational potential of digital technologies and our entry into what they termed the second industrial divide. They understood that computers were combining with manufacturing in new ways that would fundamentally change the nexus between markets and technology, making flexible specialization possible. Their analysis begins with the traditional path observation mode, but then moves into path creation as they outline what would be needed for a beneficial future. Beginning in fashion and publishing, Pior and Sable document how computers and communication technologies are pointing towards specialized manufacturing that could quickly adapt to niche markets. They also note that, quote, the existing institutions no longer secure a workable match between the production and the consumption of goods, 
and conclude that these institutions must be supplemented or replaced, end quote. Pior and Sable were awarded a MacArthur Genius Grant for their insights in digital technology and the future of work. Their understanding of the flexibility of the technology, particularly around rapidly responsive fashion design and production in the communities of northern Italy, think of the fashion firm Benetton, anticipates in some ways the emergence of community fabrication. And yet, Pior and Sable's analysis was now two decades after the publication of the Gordon Moore article. The researchers did not fully foresee and account for the potential for exponential growth with digital technologies. While it would have been hard to envision, the, envision in the mid-1980s, had they understood and fully addressed the accelerating aspect of digital technologies, they would have been more able to help us anticipate the implications for individuals, organizations, and institutions. Inventors and Entrepreneurs when it comes to new technologies, the most forward-thinking and impactful path creators have typically been inventors and entrepreneurs. They generally operate with a single-minded focus on translating an innovation into a successful commercial enterprise. In the late 1970s and early 1980s, many technologists certainly recognized and fully engaged with the exponential nature of digital technologies. Bill Gates and Paul Allen's early mission statement at Microsoft envisioned a computer in every desk and in every home, presumably running Microsoft software. This mission was, mission was predicated on an assumption of the exponential nature of digital software. Xerox PARC, Intel Labs, and others engaged social scientists who were exploring the intersection of digital technologies and society. These entrepreneurs and corporate researchers undoubtedly recognized the power and potential of personal computing to have an impact on society, but their primary focus was on building successful businesses, not leveraging the emerging technologies to address societal challenges or mitigate harm. What if the young entrepreneurial Bill Gates had had the mindset of his elder self, bringing his current social entrepreneurship mindset to the early formation of Microsoft? In the 1980s, inventor and futurist Ray Kurzweil began using models to track exponential digital technologies to predict the future. In his book, The Age of Intelligent Machines, he made a wide variety of predictions based on the accelerating technologies he was observing. But Kurzweil was looking at the models as an inventor. His modeling of future capabilities informed his inventions, so they were timed to leverage those emerging capabilities. And he was observing them as a futurist, not as a social scientist. Through his books, he helped raise awareness of the importance of exponential digital technologies, but he wasn't focused on providing models for how individuals and organizations could co-evolve with these technologies. In parallel with the inventors and entrepreneurs who tuned into the exponential rates of change were writers of fiction, particularly those writing hard science fiction, that is, material grounded in scientific accuracy, who served as co-creators operating at the interface of people, technology, and the future. These writers were often prescient and evocative in painting a picture of the social implications of accelerating digital technologies. In 1968, Arthur C. Clarke's 2001, A Space Odyssey, imagined the power of supercomputers, artificial intelligence, and even cool gadgets like the Newspad, an early version of the iPad. In 1984, William Gibson's Neuromancer envisioned the social and cultural impact of cyberspace, popularizing the term he coined a few years earlier in his short story, Burning Chrome. 
Of course, Neil has been inspired by Star Trek to help turn the replicator from fiction into reality. These science fiction creators and others like them not only developed evocative images of future digital technologies, but also uncovered and challenged critical embedded assumptions about these technologies by placing them in a social context with deeply human narratives. Not surprisingly, technology entrepreneurs and science-grounded storytellers have been more proactive in literally and figuratively shaping emerging technologies than social scientists have been. But it does not need to remain that way. The challenge is to be both positive, in the scientific sense, and normative. The social sciences do not need to abandon their core principles and methods. They need to expand their traditional methods and work across disciplines to understand and identify ways to engage and shape technology before it shapes us in ways we will regret. The social sciences can also be effective for understanding and addressing the ways that technology can shock and disorient people, which is likely to happen with each new phase of the third digital revolution. This begins with social scientists first taking the time to understand the underlying technologies and communities. The humanities can help anchor deeply human values and narratives when we are constructing future scenarios that integrate new technology with social systems. Of course, technologists and scientists will have to be open to inputs and collaboration with the social sciences and the humanities, an attitude that will also require some cultural change. For all parties, a closer look at how individuals, organizations, and institutions are able to respond to accelerating change is needed. Rates of change. Digital technologies are capable of exponential rates of change. Social systems and people also change, but typically at more incremental rates. Rates of change vary for individuals, changes in attitudes, behaviors, skill sets, and access, with most changes proceeding in small steps. Change also occurs incrementally for organizations, changes in strategy, structure, process, culture, and technology, and institutions, changes in societal norms, standards, laws, and priorities. Calling for social scientists, storytellers, and others to co-create with technologists requires close attention to these differential rates of change. Incremental rates of change in social systems serve as rate limiters for the potential of accelerating technologies. Note that we focus on rate limiters more than absolute barriers. There can, of course, be absolute barriers to change, but it is more common that various forms of friction slow down rather than stop change altogether. When it comes to rates of change, the three domains that constitute social systems, individuals, organizations, and institutions are analytically distinct but interwoven in practice. As a result, it is important to understand the rates of change in each domain, as well as how they then fit together with respect to technology. Once the different rates of change are understood, we can develop opportunities for increased influence over how change unfolds. Innovations that have faster rates of change can exploit cracks in slower-moving organizations and institutions, breaking free of rate-limiting forces. Of course, technology itself can sometimes be the rate limiter. For example, the invention and installation of fiber optic cable addressed an important technological constraint with the first digital revolution. So did issues like hard drive capacity, hard drive density, and processor speed. Looking ahead, failing to advance the fundamental science of digital materials, a truly end-to-end fabrication process where we can code the construction of the materials themselves, will be a rate limiter for Lass's law. 
When technology is the rate limiter, the challenges that need to be addressed focus more on resources for research and fundamental science. Note that rates of change for social systems vary from no change to linear change to exponential change. We have all experienced no change. This is the frustration of gridlock and the deeper frustration when we realize that some stakeholders see it in their interest to create the gridlock. We have all experienced linear change. We are used to changes in interest rate percentages, productivity rates, unemployment rates, and the like. The rates do fluctuate, and the fluctuation can be consequential, but it is all within ranges that we intuitively understand. Thinking in terms of exponential change, however, is not instinctual. A number of today's authors use the metaphor of a car traveling at different speeds to illustrate the acceleration of technological change. The metaphor begins with a car going six miles per hour, representing the craft era. Navigating the car is not difficult. A car traveling an, or an order of magnitude faster at 60 miles per hour stands for the last century, the industrial era. Starting, stopping, and turning becomes more difficult, but the roads can still be navigated. The post-industrial digital era is analogous to the car breaking the land speed record, moving at 600 miles per hour, where the smallest disturbance in the road could be massively disruptive, and survival depends on the ability to see further down the road than human eyesight allows. The implication is that individuals, organizations, and institutions will need new capabilities to function effectively when the pace of change accelerates by an order of magnitude. Staying with the car analogy, continued exponential growth in the rates of change, which is what is projected for digital fabrication, would involve a jump from 600 to 6,000 miles per hour in another decade, followed mid-century with accelerating rates of change by possibly 6 million miles per hour. Hold on tight, it is going to be quite the ride. As Ray Kurzweil cautions, quote, Today we anticipate continuous technological progress and the social repercussions that follow. But the future will be far more surprising than most people realize, because few observers have truly internalized the implications of the fact that the rate of change itself is accelerating, end quote. Looking back at how institutions, organizations, and individuals navigate change is helpful as we look forward to all three proactively shaping the third digital revolution. Institutions Historically, institutions, the human-made laws, regulations, customs, and arrangements that govern what should and should not occur in society, have been very slow to change. Begin with the word institution, which was coined in French in the middle 1400s, this is the first time it appeared in any Western language, yet the things it described, the monarchy, the military, the church, had been around for more than a thousand years. The very slow pace of change in these arrangements, measured in millennia, likely accounts for the delay in the word's appearance. For individuals and organizations, there was no need for a word for a concept that wasn't evident across multiple generations. With the arrival of the Industrial Revolution, the pace of change accelerated by an order of magnitude. New institutional arrangements like constitutional democracies, political parties, labor unions, corporations, boys and girls clubs, Kiwanis clubs emerged in 50 to 100 years rather than 500 to 1,000 years. The pace of change accelerated. Within a lifetime, major transformation was evident and we labeled it a revolution. Today, in today's digitally powered world, there is pressure for institutions to change at an even past, faster pace. 
institutional arrangements and settings as diverse as music, finance, government, marriage, business, labor, education, security, and religion are all experiencing massive disruption at a pace that is yet another order of magnitude faster than during the Industrial Revolution. Institutions today must be in a constant state of change, with fundamental shifts happening often every five to ten years, which is an order of magnitude faster than was the case during most of the 20th century. And this pace of change continues to accelerate, with some sectors experiencing dramatic shifts measured in months, not years. The problem is that the institutions are not adjusting anywhere near this quickly. Of course, we need institutions to provide stability and continuity, but they need to balance their core center of gravity or mission with unprecedented foresight, modularity, and agility. If they remain purely reactive and rigid, the results are a lack lack of relevancy, lost opportunities, stasis, and more often, direct harm to individuals, communities, industries, and even entire societies. The World Bank's 2016 World Development Report on Digital Dividends points to analog aspects of society, particularly institutional arrangements, that are needed to address gaps resulting from the first two digital revolutions. Quote, To get the most out of the digital revolution, countries also need to work on the analog complements by strengthening regulations that ensure competition among businesses, by adapting workers' skills to the demands of the new economy, and by ensuring that institutions are accountable. The world, end quote, the world Bank termed analog components as institutional arrangements that need to operate more like the digital technologies which, with which they are interacting. There are clues in the very nature of the technology to help accomplish this goal, such as the roles of modularity and error correction in digital technologies, a connection which we develop more fully in Chapter 6. There are also some clear lessons from the more recent history with the first two digital revolutions in how to accelerate rates of change at the institutional level of society. Consider an illustrative institution, K-12 Education. This sector has been remarkably resistant to change through the first two digital revolutions. The slow pace of change for educational institutions has left them vulnerable to disruption. Agile individuals and organizations can exploit the cracks in the system with faster rates of change that are better aligned with the needs of both teachers and students. These emerging institutional arrangements will ultimately be able to succeed in part because they leverage and co-evolve with the digital technologies in new and innovative ways. Most of K-12 education is dominated by 20th century classrooms, the industrial model, a 19th century structure for the academic calendar, the agrarian model, polarizing battles over teacher and student assessment, and a publishing ecosystem dominated by a handful of entrenched organizations. And yet, growing choruses of education researchers, business leaders, politicians, philanthropists, entrepreneurs, and educational reformers are passionately arguing that we are not effectively cultivating the necessary 21st century skills and mindsets like critical thinking, creativity, collaboration, communication, design thinking, problem solving, and resiliency, all required for the next generation to survive and thrive in a rapidly changing complex, and digitally infused world. Learning to learn is key to navigating a world where you are likely to change jobs every two to three years, according to the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics, and where many of these jobs have not yet been invented. 
Students may also come of age in a world with fewer and fewer jobs available because of continued advancements in automation, AI, and globalization. But schools, even those eager for innovation, struggle with the introduction and integration of technology-mediated and project-based learning. To keep pace with the digital age, schools, districts, states, and even entire countries have purchased a lot of technology. Much of this technology, however, lies fallow or is underutilized because teachers aren't trained for tech-mediated learning. The technology and supporting infrastructure, such as internet connectivity, are unreliable, and there is a dearth of good, pedagogically grounded resources designed to take advantage of the technology. Many parents, who are frustrated that their kids are spending, on average, eight hours a day immersed in digital technologies at home and in school, are not excited about even more technology in their kids' lives. Administrators who worry about liabilities and safety often lock down internet access, creating blacklist or blocked and whitelist approved websites. On top of all these challenges, there continues to rage a political battle around federal versus local control of education and the teachers have been caught in the middle. Often underpaid and always overworked, they find a difficult job even more difficult because of all the institutional friction. Allen and his business partner Michael Angst encountered this complex institutional ecosystem firsthand with their company, E-Line Media, introduced two innovative game-based learning projects for K-12 schools. The first project, GameStar Mechanic, is a platform that teaches middle school youth how to make games to help cultivate design thinking and 21st century skills. The game, which also provides highly engaging motivation for STEM learning, was originally funded by the MacArthur Foundation and was developed in partnership with the Institute of Play. The second project, Minecraft EDU, was a modification to the popular consumer game Minecraft. The mod was originally developed by Teacher Gaming, a company founded by two teachers eager to use the power of the hugely popular game in the classroom. Eline partnered with Teacher Gaming to help expand the distribution and impact of Minecraft EDU. Together, these game-based platforms reached over a million students in more than 15,000 schools. Unlike the textbook publishers with massive sales forces, Eline has no dedicated salespeople. Its products don't sell into the traditional school channel. They seep in, largely from the bottom up, by going directly to teachers. The rigidity of the existing institutions led Eline to focus on teacher discovery, teacher-to-teacher recommendations, and hands-on trial in the classroom and at teacher professional conferences. This approach required continually reducing friction for adoption, designing for flexible and transparent pricing, and enabling continual optimization of the service based on teacher and student feedback. Like many other providers of innovative, digital-centric learning products and services, Eline used the power of digital networks and teacher communities to circumvent institutional rate limiters such as centralized purchasing practices, annual decision-making timelines, teach-to-the-test priorities, and fear of the new. Agency was shifted to the teachers who actually used the products and services rather than centralized selection and purchasing divisions. This seep-in strategy took advantage of emerging cracks in the entrenched K-12 system. Although there are some unique challenges for fab-based learning, especially given the complexity of introducing hardware, software, and physical materials, many of the same principles apply when innovative project-based learning is being introduced to schools. 
When a growing number of agile, aligned, and passionate organizations take advantage of these cracks, their collective influence can become increasingly deep and pervasive, offering the potential to trigger significant changes across the education ecosystem, enabling new market leaders, platforms, and cultures to emerge. Institutions are the product of repeated, patterned behavior, and these new patterns can become the new institutional arrangements. Institutions don't usually reinvent reinvent themselves. In Chapter 6, we will explore how institutions can make institutions analogous to machines making machines. History, however, records some powerful forces arrayed against the idea of agile and adaptive institutions. As we noted earlier, Robert Michel's Iron Law of Oligarchy and Kuhn's scientific revolutions pointed to punctuated equilibrium models, where periods of stability are punctuated by periods of rapid change. Kuhn documents how the potential for earlier and more continuous change was present, but how rate limiters, in the form of conservative gatekeepers of knowledge, generate increased pressure for change so that, when it happens, it is often rapid and disruptive. Consider Neil's seemingly simple request for a .edu internet domain for the Fab Academy from EduCause, the institutional arrangement that governs these designs, which provides a good example of inflexible rulemaking within institutions. EDU Cause is a new institutional arrangement born of the second digital revolution, but it still continues to think in old and very traditional ways. The rules of the game are that the only the educational institutions that can get a .edu designations are those with a physical location. This rule does bring a certain stability to the .edu domain, but it also limits innovation and growth for legitimate non-traditional entrants. The new fab educational model emerged with a faster pace of change than what even a digital institutional arrangement could respond to. The key question is whether EduCause and other digital gatekeepers can reinvent themselves to match new realities, or if they will be supplanted by those that can continually adapt. Beyond institutions being slow to change, there are also rate limiters associated with the ability of small interest groups to create institutional gridlock. For a window into this dynamic at the community level, consider what emerged when Joel and his team worked with local leaders in Dodge City, Kansas, to do a stakeholder map on digital inclusion. Out of 100 stakeholders surveyed, 97 expressed varying degrees of support for digital inclusion based on its importance for education, health information, workforce development, and civic engagement. Yet, a few people responded with strongly worded oppositional comments such as this statement, quote, I think that internet access is still a privilege, and I am not willing to pay more for my access just so lower-income families and such do not have to pay or get a reduced cost for theirs, end quote. Wow. This argument that is surfacing is known as the tragedy of the commons, the failure of individuals to contribute sufficiently to sustain common resources. At the community summit, considerable attention had to be given to ensuring that these views did not undercut the entire initiative. Eleanor Ostrom earned a Nobel Prize, documenting how new institution forms such as public-private partnerships are needed to overthrow narrow self-interest, which will continue to be a challenge in the third digital revolution. The third digital revolution will need institutions that are agile in the face of exponential change. At a functional level, institutions have to do two things, create value and mitigate harm. Or as Henry Kissinger once put it with respect to the institutions of foreign policy, quote, 
what is in our interest to prevent and what is in our interest to accomplish, end quote. Institutions still need to advance these functions in an era where driverless cars are making ethical decisions and the ability for almost anyone to hack genes seems to be around the corner, but at a much faster rate of change. Ralph Cicerone called out the need for institutional change on a broad scale in his 2012 presidential address to the National Academy of Sciences. Quote, Today's most troubling and daunting problems have common features. Some of them arise from human members and resource exploitation. They require long-term commitment from separate sectors of society and diverse disciplines to solve. Simple, unidimensional solutions are unlikely, and failure to solve them can lead to disasters. In some ways, the scales and complexities, complexities of our current and future problems are unprecedented, and it is likely that solutions will have to be iterative. Institutions can enable the ideas and energies of individuals to have more impact and to sustain efforts in ways that individuals cannot. End quote. Organizations the third digital revolution will have a deep impact on all organizations, businesses, nonprofits, government agencies, philanthropies, whether they had their roots in an agrarian craft era, the industrial revolution, or in the first two digital revolutions. In most cases, the rates of change in strategies, structures, and processes will be faster than those in organizational culture, which is a key rate limiter for organizations. Culture, in turn, is reflected in and sustained by deeply embedded operating assumptions. An organization that survives and thrives in, th in the third digital revolution will need to maintain and adjust its operating assumptions so that it is aligned with the new technologies as the innovations emerge. Concurrently, operating assumptions will shape what new technologies can even emerge. An operating assumption is not usually stated, but it represents the way things happen in an organization. Organizational scholars liken these assumptions to the strands of DNA or code that makes an organization what it is. A foundational operating assumption for organizations was identified by Douglas McGregor in 1960 in The Human Side of Enterprises. He contrasts Theory X management styles, where workers need to be monitored and controlled, with Theory Y management styles, that work is as natural as play, and workers just need to be given the tools and resources to do the best job they can. McGregor observes that, quote, The next time you attend a meeting, tune your ear to listen for assumptions about human behavior, whether they relate to an individual, a particular group, or people in general, end quote. His point is that once you know the underlying operating assumption, you can predict all that will follow. A set of Theory X assumptions will drive a very different decision set and action set than will Theory Y assumptions. In anticipating the implications of the third digital revolution for organizations, we need to learn to tune our ears to the operating assumptions that limit rates of change. When operating assumptions impede the needed transformation, they must change, and change is not easy. Consider a firm that is emblematic of the first industrial revolution, the Ford Motor Company. Ford has transformed itself from a mass production behemoth into a more agile, team-based operation, demonstrating continuous improvement in quality, safety, and other measures. In Europe, mass production is still referred to by social scientists as Fordism. Gonzalo Rey, who is the chief technical officer for Moog, a manufacturer for specialty components for various industries, compares the rate of change over the past century for the shop floor at Ford with other sectors, saying, quote, 
If you freeze frame the work on the shop floor in Henry Ford's factory and look at it over a hundred years, you will see dramatic changes due to technology. Compare that to a construction worksite or a hospital where the labor content will not have changed much over the same hundred years. The result is that transportation has become widely affordable while the relative cost of a skyscraper or a home or a hospital visit is not much more accessible than it was a hundred years ago." End quote. For Gonzalo, the difference is not just the availability of the technology, but the actual process by which it is adopted and integrated into the organizational functions. That is the key rate of change. Joel has been deeply involved in the significant changes involving Ford and its U.S. union, the United Automobile Workers, since the 1980s. A key, the key to progress has been the shifting of the company's operating assumptions. For example, managers at Ford have had to move from doing everything possible to contain problems so that the hierarchy would not see them, to openly sharing problems and even discussing near misses to learn from things that might have been problems. This shift in operating assumptions from concealing problems to sharing them required behavioral changes at all levels of the organization. At the front lines, workers have to, had to have the confidence that they would not be blamed for reporting a quality error or even stopping the assembly line to contain a problem. Stopping the assembly line costs around $10,000 for each minute it is down. The same defensive approach ruled at the executive level, level, where leaders were focused on containing problems and keeping them from becoming a career-ending event. This defensiveness was a rate limiter that turned into a rate accelerator when the culture shifted to support sharing and collectively addressing problems. These changes in the management organization were crucial, but they also took many years to effectuate. The transformation from a culture of blame to one of sharing problems took over a decade and is ongoing. Similarly, union leaders have evolved from directly opposing unfair decisions and unilateral actions by management to joint partnerships in safety, quality, and other objectives. Union members now earn black belts in Six Sigma change processes and help design quality and safety operating systems. When Joel facilitated a joint quality charter between the United Automobile Workers and Ford, the resulting document was important, but the process was more so. Just as the process of revisiting the FAB charter will be at least as important as the resulting document. With the UAW and Ford, the chartering process took a few months, but aligning the work across the enterprise in support of the charter, with operating assumptions centered on partnership and reciprocal responsibility, has taken years. Altogether, the UAW-Ford transformation took 30 years and at least 56 pivotal events, like the chartering. In a similar way, it will take many years and more than a few pivotal events for a FAB charter to achieve its full potential in bringing people together and changing operating assumptions in the FAB ecosystem. The hierarchical mass production model is an organizational rate limiter because it concentrates planning, decision making, and supporting actions within the chain of command. Back in 1960, McGregor observed, quote, It is probable that one day we shall begin to draw organizational charts as a series of linked groups, rather than as a hierarchical structure of individual reporting relationships, end quote. The process of changing deeply embedded operating assumptions is not easy. First, the existing assumptions need to be surfaced and recognized. Then, people need to be able to experiment with new behaviors rooted in different assumptions without blame when it doesn't match established norms. Evidence needs to be collected on the results associated with new approaches, but leaders need to advance new approaches well before all the evidence comes in, overcoming the forces of inertia. 
there will be pivotal test events where the new assumptions are on the table. It is an iterative process. For all organizations, with many roots back to the rise of the Industrial Revolution, the changes in operating assumptions have been essential to keeping pace with the first two digital revolutions. The third digital revolution will further challenge the operating assumptions of these organizations. Importantly, many of the operating assumptions that will be on the table are related to a more distributed use of knowledge and skills, that is, increased agency throughout the enterprises. A more distributed operations model allows for more agile, resilient, and ongoing adaptation, whereas the traditional model is a rate limiter. These organizations will undoubtedly experience a series of pivotal events that will add up to a transformation, just like the Ford Motor Company, but they will not have a window of three decades to make the change. The challenge doesn't just apply to traditional, in industrially structured organizations. As Neil notes, many founding organizations of the first two digital revolutions, such as DEC, Wang, Prime, and Data General, no longer exist. Just because they were producing digital products did not mean that they had operating assumptions sufficient to match the pace of change in a digital era. In the case of DEC, for example, the rate limiter was partly a failure to address the shift from mainframe computing to personal computing. A closer look reveals additional embedded operating assumptions that were the key to early success and a rate limiter later on. These included a near reverence for the founder Ken Olson. Such admiration was great when he was correct in his understanding of the technology frontier and fatal when he was wrong. Additionally, some operating assumptions on the front lines stifled dissent and limited a bottom-up capability to adapt. Digital organizations that have survived the second digital revolution, such as Microsoft, Google, and Intel, enter the third digital revolution already attuned to exponential rates of change. Each has a distinct culture with unique combinations of operating assumptions, but all operate with an assumption that the next five years will not necessarily look like the past five years. Intel is a particularly interesting case. Moore's Law is embedded in the DNA of this corporation. Its business plan is centered on a doubling of performance every 18 to 24 months. Intel's copy-exactly approach to changes in its operations balances innovation and standardization. Innovations in any one facility are studied, and if they are viable, all facilities are expected to copy the innovations exactly to form a new base on which new innovations can emerge. This operating assumption is a rate accelerator, enabling continuous improvement at the level of the enterprise rather than at an individual facility level. These surviving organizations from the second digital revolution are already acting a bit like machines that make machines. That is, the organizations are making new organizations through the continual process of mergers, acquisitions, joint ventures, public-private partnerships, and a wide variety of flexible team-based operating structures. Their operating assumptions not only feature more horizontal forums and mechanisms for planning, decisions, and action, but also function to some degree with the same modular assembly and disassembly that Neil outlines in the underlying digital principles. Still, the analogy is not complete. These organizations will resist complete disassembly. Further, digital fabrication will challenge some operating assumptions for organizations oriented around bits. For example, they will have to consider how their computing technologies interact with active supply chains for consumable materials and intensified social norms around open sharing and barter exchange. 
Intel is still recovering from its slow entry into the mobile computing market, but the changes associated with the third digital revolution may not have as much room for error. To examine rate limiters and accelerators at the organizational level, we need to observe rates of change in technology and identify whether an organization's operating assumptions align with the technology. Alignment at the organizational level is not as complex as it is at the institutional level, where many more stakeholders and interests can be at play. On the other hand, organizations that don't adapt can disappear faster than the time it takes to realize that organizational change is not happening. Individuals Although some individuals such as technology pioneers and early adopters embrace and keep pace with technological change, not all individuals have this opportunity or even this desire. In Future Shock, Toffler says that, quote, too much change in too short a period of time leads to feelings of helplessness, despair, depression, uncertainty, insecurity, anxiety, and burnout, end quote. Many people feel this way today, a predictable response to accelerating change. In the 1990s, a model for managing change with regard to individuals was developed for use in individual or executive education. The transition curve, depicted here, below illustrates how individuals respond to change. There are other similar models to use, most of which have roots in Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's model for dealing with death and dying. In the figure, the vertical axis denotes relative levels of self-perceived competence. The horizontal axis is time. As the curve illustrates, after the initial shock of encountering something new, a new person's self-perceived competence increases with his or her denial of key aspects of the change. The process of increasing awareness and acceptance involves acknowledging what you don't know, letting go of old assumptions, perceptions, and other considerations. Only then are experimentation, understanding, and integ integration possible. What complicates the transition curve in the context of the third digital revolution is that it has to match the speed of exponential change. This requirement for speed increases the likelihood of denial after the shock and makes the journey to awareness, acceptance, experimentation, and understanding more complicated. William Bridges' 1991 change model in Managing Transitions is consistent with the transition curve depicted in this figure, pointing out that people have to let go of the old and navigate the neutral zone awareness and acceptance, before they are ready to embrace the new. For individuals facing accelerating changes, it will mean managing these transitions more and more frequently. But for individuals, the implications of accelerating change with the third digital revolution go beyond just a new mindset. Some very tangible adjustments also have their own rates of change. For example, the time it takes to achieve basic liter literacy in digital fabrication is approximately 6 to 18 months, a relatively fast learning curve. However, deeper mastery of the underlying principles of material science, design thinking, electronic circuit design, and other relevant domains is measured in years, sometimes decades. Advances in the technology will undoubtedly shorten the needed learning curves for basic functionality, just as using a computer or mobile device today doesn't require computer, computer programming skills to take advantage of the vast array of applications. The increase in the number of individuals building the needed capability to effectively leverage the technology is depicted in the graph of labs and grads. The upper solid line plots the same data Neil used to plot the growth of fab labs, the lower dashed line plots the growth in graduates from the Fab Academy. 
The vertical line is both the number of fab labs and the number of people it is trained with the skills to function effectively in a fab lab. The graduates of the fab academy often become critical mentors for existing or new fab labs. Of course, there are more ways to learn about digital fabrication than just the Fab Academy, but the figure illustrates both the opportunity and the challenges in cultivating Fab literacies and Fab mentors. The good news is that there is a growth trajectory of Fab Academy graduates. But not every graduate has the time or desire to mentor the growing number of people who need mentorship throughout the ecosystem. More importantly, the rate of change is slower than the growth of Fab Labs. To further illustrate the challenge of the relative rates of change, the following figure extends the two curves above to represent possible future scenarios building on the current data. The top solid line is a possible growth curve for fab labs at the rate that would put five labs in every city of more than 100,000 people, of which there are over 4,000 in the world, and an approximate equivalent number in rural locations. Note that in this scenario, the growth of fab labs begins to level off at the end, this change is the sigmoid that Neil mentioned in Chapter 3. When it levels off, another change comes along in a steeper sigmoid curve. The lower dashed dotted line of Fab Academy graduates is a conservative estimate on mentoring capability, the training in the Fab Academy. Still, this graph illustrates the risk that the growth of human capability will be a constraint or rate limiter on realizing the potential growth of Fab Labs. The point here is not to make a specific estimate of growth on either dimension, but instead to visualize the dramatic increase in the rates of change needed in social systems to keep pace with the technology. Head, Heart, and Hands The profiles in this book have primarily been on fab pioneers, individuals who have already bought into the power and promise of digital fabrication. This is still a relatively small group of people. If fab labs are to reach the wider population, it will be essential to engage those unaware or even resistant to the idea of a third digital revolution. As Alvin Toffler pointed out on the cusp of the first two digital revolutions, quote, future shock is the shattering stress and disorientation that we induce in individuals by subjecting them to too much change in too short a time. The signs of this stress and disorientation are certainly visible throughout society, end quote. For all its potential benefits, the third digital revolution will not be a welcome process for many individuals. Indeed, many of the world is drawing inward, with a combination of isolationist views, distrust of technology, fear of job loss, and anger with growing inequality. Embedded in the concept of digital fabrication is a unique combination of local self-sufficiency and global interdependence that represents an alternative path forward. But that is not an easy concept to communicate in a world of tweets, soundbites, and information echo chambers. For challenges like fab inclusion to become a global priority, the broader population can't just be asked to embrace more technological change, they need to become stakeholders in helping to shape how the change can positively impact themselves, their families, and communities. Social change will succeed better when the beneficiaries become key drivers of the desired change. To address these challenges, we recommend approaches that simultaneously appeal to the head, logic-centric, the heart, emotion-centric, and the hands, practice-centric. We have all experienced how hard it is to change present behavior to accomplish long-term goals. Whether it's saving money for future financial health, diet and exercise for future physical health, or taking proactive steps to mitigate climate change for the future health of the planet, there is a wealth of evidence that this type of behavior change is extremely difficult. 
The challenge of engaging people in a third digital revolution is even more of a hurdle because a great many people are still adjusting to the first two digital revolutions. Neil builds his case for the importance of engaging with the third digital revolution mostly on evidence, logic, and reason. This head-centric approach is also the preferred model for many government agencies and philanthropies that design their theories of change around logic models and input-output analyses. It is absolutely necessary to have a strong evidence-based analysis of why accelerating digital fabrication technologies can, for example, lead to meaningful education or employment benefits. But this logic-centric approach is typically not sufficient if you want to engage a broader population not inclined to immerse themselves in the details. For many people, it is also necessary to appeal to the heart. For as long as humans have had the ability to communicate, storytelling has been an essential tool for helping one generation guide the next generation through the challenges and complexities of life. Before the invention of writing, these stories were passed down in the form of oral stories, rituals, and plays. The stories that have stood the test of time, those that have transcended cultures and context, are those that explore universal human themes in highly engaging and relevant format. There is a saying, those origins are not clear, although it is often attributed to the Talmud that words which emanate from the heart enter the heart. Similarly, stories that emanate from the heart enter the heart. Embedding the power and promise of digital fabrication into deeply human narratives, evocatively told, can fire the imagination and serve as a gateway to inspire deeper engagement. In addition to appealing to the head and the heart, we must also offer hands-on interaction with the evolving technologies. It is one thing to read about a fab lab, it is another to get the thrill of harnessing these powerful machines to accomplish personally meaningful goals, and then share these accomplishments with friends, family, co-workers, and the broader fab community. Many of the pioneers of the first two digital revolutions point to their early inspiration as a combination of compelling media, like Star Trek television or the Isaac Asimov novels. A few mentors who made the science come to life, like a great science teacher or inspired parent, and crucially, hands-on tinkering at homebrew computer clubs or with computer kits. The alchemy across all three of these engagement models is powerful, especially if they reinforce one another. One important note, the early homebrew computer clubs and computer building kits in the 1980s were very much the domain of nerdy white males. That stereotype persists today. There is currently much more diversity in the FAB ecosystem, as is evident in many of the case studies highlighted in this book. This inclusiveness needs to be highlighted to continue to attract diverse new stakeholders. There is actually a long history of connecting head, heart, and hands. Aristotle connected the virtuous heart with the head, the mind of a philosopher. Religious organizations over the years have connected the concepts through the integration of thought, passion, and action. Psychologists use a similar framework when they speak of cognitive, affective, and behavioral change. These integrated elements can also be found in numerous modern organizations, such as 4-H clubs, Head, Hands, Heart, and Health, and even almost MIT. The official MIT seal, adopted in 1864, features the Latin phrase mens et manus, the head and the hands. What is missing is the heart. This lack of heart in the MIT motto has not gone, un gone unnoticed by students, faculty, and alumni. In September 2015, following a tragic series of student suicides, MIT Chancellor Cynthia Barnhart and Medical Director 
William Kettle, announced the Mind Hand Heart Initiative to improve the coordination of MIT's existing mental health and counseling offerings. In May 2016, at the 100th anniversary celebrations of MIT's presence in Cambridge, MIT alumnus and Car Talk host Ray Magliozzi, in partnership with a student-built robot, publicly came to the conclusion that it has been only been at that it has only been by adding core or heart to mind and hands that MIT has developed into a thriving institution it is today. For individuals in the third digital revolution, simultaneously engaging the head, the heart, and the hands can be a rate accelerator. Not doing so will be a rate limiter. Ecosystems. We have examined how rates of change for individuals, organizations, and institutions can be rate limiters. Although it is important to understand each level separately, ultimately, any meaningful change involves understanding how all three interact with each other. If digital fabrication technologies are to accelerate at exponential rates of change and help catalyze a more self-sufficient, interconnected, and sustainable society, there will need to be ecosystem-level transformation, regionally and globally. In biology, an ecosystem consists of interacting organisms and their environment. Coevolution in biology is a product of the interactions. When it comes to technology in society, the ecosystem includes the interactions between individuals, organizations, and institutions with technology and the natural environment. Coevolution happens, sometimes planned and sometimes unplanned. To anticipate the challenges and opportunities for making societal level ecosystem change, it is helpful to look back at a few historical attempts at alternative ecosystems. Relatively early in the Industrial Revolution, Robert Owens's story illustrates an ecosystem's approach that might have been an alternative economic model in society. Born in Wales in 1771, Owen rose to be the manager of a textile firm in Manchester, England by the age of 21. By 1799, as co-owner of the Scottish New Lanark Mill, Owen rejected the way mills were then being run and constructed what we would now call an ecosystem approach to social change. The effort included infant childcare in the community, support for schooling of the workers' children, safe working conditions, fair pay, worker education, worker feedback on the quality of goods produced, and cooperative retail outlets so that workers would not have to buy shoddy goods. Imagine if these changes were taken up by other entrepreneurs and influencers throughout society. It would have redefined the Industrial Revolution in many beneficial ways. In fact, Owen's model ran headlong into resistance from what was by then the established industrial order. Other co-owners of the mill protested that not enough of the profits were coming their way. There was all, apparently already an expectation that the business should maximize only profits. For Owen's mill, the matter was resolved with the help of social reformer Jeremy Bentham and others who brought out the protesting co-owners. This extended the life of the experiment, but was not an easily replicated practice in other settings. The new Lanark mill did not or did become a magnet for what we would call today benchmarking visits by social reformers, church leaders, politicians, and others, which increased the potential for a broader impact. As it turns out, the aspects of the model associated with mitigating harm did impact society in some significant ways, but the aspects associated with creating value did not. Owen became a driving force in the passage of the 1819 Cotton Mills and Factories Act, which focused on child labor and working hours. He led the movement for the eight-hour work week with the motto, eight hours labor, eight hours recreation, eight hours rest. 
In this regard, the protective legislation could be seen as a rate accelerator for mitigating harm in an era of technological change. What could not be as easily legislated and enforced, however, were the aspects of the model associated with creating value, such as worker consultation, cooperative retail outlets, promoting quality, and other social innovations. Although Owen documented the lessons and sought to promote them in his home country and the United States, the combination of benchmarking and his book were not enough to get a critical mass of people adopting, adapting, and extending this alternative model. If we fast forward to the 1950s, we find another alternative ecosystem model that was able to regionally scale for both creating value and mitigating harm. The Mondragon Cooperative in the Basque region of Spain was founded in 1956 by a Catholic priest. The cooperative has grown to employ over 75,000 individuals in hundreds of small and medium-sized firms. The model is different than the traditional industrial model in some key ways. If a firm fails, for example, income support and retraining is provided, along with investment opportunities for people who want to launch new firms. Cluster del Conocimiento is a collection of working groups that serve as a knowledge engine for Mondragon, looking ahead to new business opportunities and changing markets. Key social services are available to all. Within this context, individual, organizational, and institutional changes have come together to enable internal growth and long-term sustainability. Even though it is a product of the relatively closed Basque culture, Mondragon has welcomed tens of thousands of benchmarking visits and been the subject of dozens of books with the aim of extending the model to other settings. Today, it is working to be effective in the digital world. It is perhaps no surprise that it is a receptive context for digital fabrication. It has dedicated research and development resources to develop new materials for 3D printing, like releasing a new nylon filament for additive manufacturing in 2015. Still, Mondragon remains a relatively closed system that interacts with the external markets primarily to sell what it produces and has not made much deep societal impact beyond its region. In discussing Mondragon, Thomas Diaz, who is leading the Fab City Initiative in Barcelona, points out that there are important insights to be gathered from the Mondragon model, but also differences when it comes to the Fab City ecosystem. He emphasizes a clear distinction between the self-contained, relatively closed model of the Mondragon cooperative and the lateral, collaborative approach that is needed for the third digital revolution. Quote, Mondragon is a different model, but we don't aim to be brokers for everything. We have a role to play, but we are more enabling. We are, supposing, we are supporting a growing, growing system of fab cities, but we do not need to be in the center, end quote. In these comments, Diaz is articulating the approach of a distributed ecosystem designed to propagate on a global scale. A more recent model for ecosystem change, with a focus on transforming education, is the Remake Learning Initiative, covering the Pittsburgh region as well as western Pennsylvania and northwest of Virginia. Remake Learning is a collaboration of more than 200 organizations expanding opportunities and enhancing learning outcomes for young people in the region. It aims to inspire a generation of lifelong learners, preparing them to thrive in the 21st century. The model includes an estimated 150 makerspaces and fab labs. The story began 20 years ago, when the Manchester Craftsmen's Guild led revitalization efforts in a long-neglected Pittsburgh neighborhood by connecting at-risk youth to apprenticeship training, arts education, and other forms of out-of-school learning. 
A decade later, in 2007, Pittsburgh's Grable Foundation launched Kids Plus Creativity in response to a seemingly simple concern that was surfacing from teachers, librarians, museum educators, and youth workers, saying, quote, I'm not connecting with kids the way I used to, end quote. At first, this concern seemed no different from the refrain of every generation with respect to youth. But further investigation revealed that the pursuit of knowledge was emerging as different in important ways in the digital age. Kids plus creativity began with a unique practice. Ten pancake breakfasts bringing together leaders from schools, museums, libraries, early learning centers, and out-of-school programs. Unsolicited, participants in the breakfast said they each knew two or three people who also needed to be a part of the conversation. Following these breakfasts was a larger gathering of over 100 people. As described by Grable Foundation Executive Director Greg Bayer, the meeting was, quote, like the gong show. Everyone had two minutes to make their comment or pitch, and then there would be a ringing of the gong, indicating the time was up. And what everyone said was very powerful, end quote. Additional funding and support followed from many sources, including the Claude Worthington Benedum Foundation, the Buell Foundation, the McCoon Foundation, the Pittsburgh Foundation, the Sprout Fund, and the Allegheny Intermediate Unit, an educational service agency. Pilot experiments were launched involving project-based learning, maker and fab-based learning, game-based learning, and other innovative approaches to teaching and learning often spanning what were previously separate domains in schools, libraries, museums, out-of-school programs in a mix of formal and informal learning contexts. Rebranded as Remake Learning in 2011, the initiative has drawn national attention and additional support from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. The umbrella term Remake Learning was deliberately selected to be descriptive without choosing from among the many contending terms and pedagogies emerging from educational innovators and ed-tech evangelists. In 2015, Chevron joined with the Carnegie Science Center and the Fab Foundation to launch a comprehensive Fab Lab in the region as part of a $10 million commitment by Chevron to the Fab Foundation to support Fab Labs in areas where Chevron has operations. This fab lab connects with the estimated 150 makerspaces in the greater Pittsburgh area, linked in various ways to the Remake Learning Network, including the Tech Shop Learning Center, Hack Pittsburgh, the Western Pennsylvania School for the Deaf's Makerspace, Maker Fair Pittsburgh, and many others. Interestingly, the initiative was seven years old in 2014 before it formed a top-level leadership council, consisting of 36 regional senior executive leaders. This reflects the early emergent nature of the initiative and also points out the need for governance as an enabling practice in an ecosystem. There is now a full-time professional staff and an interconnected network of 2,000 educators and community activists, nearly 40% of whom have joined within the past two years. Pittsburgh is one of 30 digital education clusters in the U.S. and arguably the most advanced. The level of outside interest has led the Remake Learning Network to develop a playbook that summarizes lessons in five learned domains. Learning environments, innovation, research, and development, learning, scholarship, and advocacy, commercial and entrepreneurial engagement, and strategic stewardship. The playbook represents an explicit effort to help make transformational change beyond one region. While primarily analog approaches to scaling change— 
the writing of in publishing of books and playbooks, the organization of site visits and benchmarking, pursuing changes of legislation are all important activities. They are ultimately limited in their ability to accelerate change at a pace to effectively co-evolve with the accelerating technologies. In order for this to happen, there will need to be a continual honing of the digital platforms, tools, and practices so that key aspects of the model can effectively propagate. For example, while there are dozens of makerspaces and fab labs throughout the region, there is still limited ability to share and collaborate on projects across the network. Dr. Todd Karuskin first became involved in remake learning as a high school principal and now serves as assistant superintendent of the Elizabeth Forward School District. He comments, quote, For digital fabrication, the key is creative projects. The Fab Foundation said it would develop a platform to share projects, and I am told it will soon be announced. This is good. We need effective design challenges, particularly project ideas to help the community, but we have struggled to develop them internally, end quote. Here, there is a need for new practices, challenging and beneficial projects, with the associated tools that can reside on a platform where they can be adopted, adapted, and extended. Since most of these practices will not be unique to the Pittsburgh area, there will be the potential to propagate beyond the region. In the case of remake learning, digital fabrication is part of a new teaching and learning ecosystem. Still emerging is the regional capacity for digital fabrication platforms, tools and practices to create more self-sustainable communities with new models for how we live, learn, work, and play. To help accelerate this process, it is helpful to look at how digital technologies have enabled a single individual or a small group of people to create truly transformative ecosystems with global impact. Propagate versus Scale the recent history of the first two digital revolutions offers insights into designing and propagating transformative ecosystems. It is now possible for a single individual or a small group of passionate visionaries to engage and empower millions of people to contribute to the design and propagation of globally transformative ecosystems. These digital ecosystems leverage passionate networks of contributors, rest on power powerful platforms, and tools enabling distributed agency, and encourage practices that are capable of propagation at exponential rates, not just in increases on a linear scale, offering unprecedented rates of change. In Chapter 2, we identified the cultivation of an enabling fab ecosystem as a key threshold challenge to creating a more self-sufficient, globally connected, and sustainable world. Here, we go deeper into this concept, including how the properties of these ecosystems are in a constantly emergent state, which is essential for exponential propagation. Emergent ecosystems share some similarities with how traditional businesses scale, but there are also key differences. Businesses can scale through a combination of planned implementation, multi-territory research and design, supply chain management, customer support, international management, along with mergers and acquisitions. Scaling in this traditional way is often very capital-intensive and takes experienced, sophisticated management. This is more of a linear process with periodic accelerations. Note that there are two key words here, propagate and scale which are used in very different ways in Neil's world and ours. We tripped over this in writing this section, and it's important to spell out the differences since each word is used in almost opposite ways in our different worlds. 
For Neil, physical propagation, such as with waves, happens with a defined velocity from a given source that is in contrast with the doubling that is at the exponential heart of scaling Moore's Law. In our world, both for-profit and non-profit organizations attempt to scale their operations with a variety of mechanisms that mostly involve top-down planning and implementation. This contrasts with what is almost an organic process of propagation that we explore in this section. Emergent ecosystems, in the way we are using the terms, don't scale, they propagate. The platforms, tools, and practices are not the same as an overarching hierarchy. Instead, structurally, they involve a form of lateral alignment, connecting independent but interdependent stakeholders. For social systems to match the exponential growth possible with technical systems, they need to propagate, propagate often in addition to traditional scaling. A few years ago, Allen attended a forum on adaptability at the Biosphere 2 near Tucson, Arizona, where this topic was explored. The convening brought together researchers across a variety of science, social science, and humanities disciplines to explore strategies for adaptation in complex, rapidly changing ecosystems. One of the first group exercises involved looking at transformative ecosystems from the first two digital revolutions and deconstructing the elements that helped them propagate and remain resilient in a world of constant and accelerating change. The group included a diverse mix of biologists, economists, philosophers, and entrepreneurs. After the conference, a small subset including John Abel, Boston Scientific co-founder and former chairman of First Robots, Ken Parker, CEO of NextThought, and Alan, the author, began documenting some of these insights. The group started with the assumption that humans have emerged as a dominant species, in large part because of our ability to, ability to collaborate in large numbers. Digital technologies have, have accelerated this ability, enabling globally transformative ecosystems to emerge in a remarkably short amount of time largely because of shared and distributed agency across aligned communities, united by core platforms, tools, and practices. Examples of such transformative ecosystems range from decentralized technology movements like Linux to for-profit entertainment like Minecraft to nonprofit web resources like Wikipedia. These three examples, Wikipedia, Linux, and Minecraft, have had a considerable impact on the world. Wikipedia is the world's sixth most popular website with a global ecosystem of contributors. It is a primary source of information for hundreds of millions of people, with close to 500 million monthly readers and 18 billion page views. A recent report by the Linux Foundation estimated that Linux software has generated 5 billion US dollars in economic value through 115 million lines of code contributed by a global ecosystem of coders in Minecraft has emerged from a small independent game created by a single Swedish game designer to a global ecosystem with more than 100 million passionate and deeply engaged youth accelerated through a global system of modders who adapt and extend the code to introduce new experiences. Each has grown through propagation rather than a more traditional form of scaling. All three examples, along with others across a variety of domains, also share a common set of attributes. The ecosystems were founded by a charismatic and passionate leader or small group of leaders who defined the community ethos, culture, and high-level rules of engagement, either overtly or through the behavior and practices. And these founders provided the enabling platforms, tools, and practices that empowered a growing ecosystem. In some cases, 
these founders set out to create transformative ecosystems. In other cases, they did not aim this way and were hence unprepared to be thrust into such a leadership position. We'll call these passionate leaders the top-down visionaries. In the fab ecosystem, Neil certainly fits into this category. In each of these, each of these ecosystems have grown in large part through the passion of an empowered and empowering middle tier of individuals and organizations, all of whom deeply identify with the vision and emerging community, and effectively leverage, adapt, and extend the platform's tools and practices. The empowered and empowering middle devote considerable time and energy, often with no formal compensation or role, to adapting and extending the platforms and practices to meet local needs or create new capabilities. Their dedication, in turn, brings diverse new participants into the ecosystem, raising their their stature in the community. Influence comes mostly through action and tangible results benefiting the community, not by top-down decree. E-Line Media and Teachers Gaming Work helped to bring Minecraft Mod, Minecraft EDU, to thousands of schools. That's an example. We'll call this tier the Empowered and Empowering Middle. In the Fab ecosystem, these are the passionate founders of Fab Labs, the coders and designers who contribute to the open-source Fab software and hardware development, and those who pioneer new initiatives like the Fab Academy, the Fab Foundation, and the Fab City Movement. Last, but certainly not least, all of these ecosystems attract and benefit numerous participants who engage to varying degrees. We'll call these stakeholders the bottom-up participants. In each of these emergent ecosystems, there is agency for stakeholders at all tiers, with appropriate levels of responsibility and ability at each tier, all aligned by shared platforms, tools, and practices, as well as, often, a shared culture and vision. In the third digital revolution, these are the growing number of engaged participants who interact with the global fab ecosystem. The founding visionaries of these products and services have been celebrated throughout the media, as have the millions of engaged, bottom-up participants in these ecosystems, sometimes referred to as the wisdom of the crowd. The idea that these ecosystems are either top-down or bottom-up, however, is a false dichotomy. It is missing the importance of the critical middle tier that often represents the secret sauce for how these ecosystems propagate in an emergent, decentralized way. Much like thriving ecosystems in nature, the middle tier creates diversity, redundancy, and adaptation, enabling the ecosystems to continually adjust to changing environments and become a force multiplier in how they propagate. Examples of this empowered and empowering middle tier include those who modify Minecraft, the editors and contributors of Wikipedia, and the Linux and Mozilla developers, to name a few. Interestingly, not all of the founders of these emergent ecosystems intended or even desired to create a movement or to change the world. The best example is Marcus Notch Person, the creator of Minecraft, who just wanted to make a fun game. When he was thrust into the role of a virtual messiah for tens of millions of tweens, the situation became simply too much. Out of the blue, he sold the game for two and a half billion US dollars to Microsoft, the last thing anyone following his active dialogue with the community thought he would ever do. In an open letter to his fans, he explained his reasons, quote, I've become a symbol. I don't want to be a symbol, responsible for something huge that I don't actually understand, that I don't want to work on, that keeps coming back to me. I'm not an entrepreneur. I'm not a CEO. I'm a nerdy computer programmer who likes to have opinions on Twitter. 
If I ever accidentally make something that seems to gain traction, I'll probably abandon it immediately. It's not about the money. It's about my sanity. End quote. Most of the emergent ecosystems that have reached tens of millions of people have centered on software. A key question for platforms that cross from bits to atoms is the impact that the atoms will have on this ability to rapidly propagate. This challenge was underscored by Mitch Resnick, who directs the Lifelong Kindergarten Group at the MIT Media Lab and is the creator of the globally popular youth computer programming platform Scratch, launched in 2007. Resnick came up with the idea for Scratch while developing creative learning experiences for the Intel Computer Clubhouses. The website is now getting 100 million unique visitors per month, and more than 21 million Scratch projects have been developed. Resnick points out, quote, When Intel announced its support for expanding the Computer Clubhouse network, I warned them that community centers couldn't expand according to Moore's Law. That was right. But the clubhouses gave birth to Scratch, which has been growing according to Moore's Law, end quote. That said, there are physical world ecosystems that also fit the emergent ecosystems model, though, as with the Fab Labs, the accelerating growth has been slower than the leading digital ecosystems. A good example is FIRST Robotics, an international high school robotics competition. FIRST was, found, was co-founded by inventor Dean Kamen in 1989 to, quote, create a world where science and technology are celebrated, where young people become science and technology heroes, end quote. First has reached more than 300,000 middle and high school youth and has over 90,000 volunteers. Kamen is a visionary founder, and the distributed network of deeply committed volunteers is truly an empowered and empowering middle tier and force multiplier in the ecosystem. One of the most impressive things about FIRST Robotics is how the culture of gracious professional teamwork and co-opetition has permeated the entire distributed ecosystem. The idea for gracious professionalism came from Woody Flowers, an emeritus professor of engineering from MIT. Flowers helped build the FIRST ecosystem and now serves as national advisor to the organization. Anyone who has been to a final national first competition, which often fills entire stadiums, knows that the community has managed to infuse a competitive environment with a culture of cooperation and respect throughout the ecosystem. A key question, then, is whether the FAB ecosystem, with its mix of digital and physical elements, can propagate into a globally transformative ecosystem. The second question is whether such an emergent ecosystem can truly lay the foundation for a more self-sufficient, interconnected, and sustainable world. Through a blend of thoughtfully architected FAB platforms, tools, and practices, it is now possible to empower a global, distributed network of passionate individuals with aligned interests and shared objectives. Inspired path creators can now not only design innovative new social and economic models, they also have the ability to propagate these models through globally transformative ecosystems. But before the social systems can truly evolve with the accelerating technology, it is first necessary to have a deeper understanding of the projected technology roadmap, which is the subject of Chapter 5. Thank you for watching. Please like, subscribe, and visit my channel for more exciting content.